Okay. Let's wait a couple more minutes. So, okay, just found someone else joining us. So we're hoping we're hoping that um, doing the invitation just based on using the same meeting number each week and not having a password will make it easier for people to sign up. So we thank you everyone for your patience. Okay, and here's Sherrianna from Nebraska. Welcome Sherrianna, good to see you. I mean to welcome you anyway. Good to be there. Hi, Ron. Don't feel rejected. We're just limiting the videos to our, our administrative team. Okay. Looks like we're at the big 701 mark. So uh, let me turn it over to you, Brother Dan, and uh, why don't you lead us with our, our welcome, all right? Okay, good. Thanks, John. Well, guys, tonight we're going to be uh, starting in a book by Evan Hopkins, and uh, if you read the introduction to the to the book by now, you know a little bit about Ed, Evan Hopkins, and also the introduction mentioned the Keswick Convention. And I just wanted to just highlight real quick a couple of points that I came across here. Evan Hopkins, born in Santa Ana, Colombia, South America, on September 16, 1837, and he. Uh, he became a born-again believer at age 21, and he was baptized and started his work as a uh, as a Christian. But he 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 never had a peace, and it was in his mid-30s that he attended a lecture given by the American Quaker Robert Pearsall Smith, and Smith insisted that like justification, sanctification too was to be received by faith, and the Holy Spirit convicted Evan of this, changed his entire life. And he took part in holiness conventions, as they call them, in England over the next three years. He was closely connected with the Keswick movement, which spread the idea that Christians have to reckon ourselves dead to sin in Christ and rely on Jesus to live his holy life in us, rather than achieve holiness by futile efforts to imitate Christ. So um, the comments that Bishop Mule made in the in- introduction to the book said that this book has rightly been regarded as the textbook of the Keswick Convention. So let me provide some insight and history into that Keswick Convention. It's an annual gathering of evangelical Christians in Keswick, which is a um, is a county located in northwest England. It began in 1875 as a focal point for the higher life movement. It was founded by Anglican an Anglican and a Quaker, and they held their first convention in a tent on Monday, and it lasted through Friday. And a lot of people came to know the Lord better as a result of the convention. One of these was Ed Evan Henry Hopkins, E.W. Moore, which is a name you'll recognize, um, Hanley Mule, as well as the South African Reformed Pastor Andrew Murray, which is a well-known name in, in my library, 
And also the founder of the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor, spoke at one of these conventions. And in response, Amy Carmichael decided to dedicate her life to missions. So, And then it was Stephen Olford who introduced Billy Graham to the Keswick message in 1946. And Graham wrote in his autobiography that this teaching came to him as a second blessing. In 1975, Billy Graham spoke at the um, centennial, the 100th year celebration of the Keswick Convention before some 15,000 people. So that is a brief introduction to uh, the book that uh, I'm excited to get into. So anybody have any questions about that? Sounds good. Okay. Well, if you'd like to start... Uh, Dr. Woodward, I've got a prayer tonight for our nation since, uh, I think we're struggling with the, uh, with the, with the facts at hand. A lot of people are struggling. My hope is in the Lord. So I just want to lead us in a prayer for, uh, for our nation tonight and for our leaders. Lord God, we desperately need your wisdom. You've given us such a great country founded on principles and truths from your word. You have exercised nothing but faithfulness and fairness in your treatment of our country. Even when many have turned their backs on you and forgotten your freely given goodness. Your discipline at times is hard, but you are just. Your purpose is always to draw us closer to you, Lord, to bless us, to make us a great nation who honors you and glorifies you. You're a good, good father and your love endures forever. Forgive us for wanting our own way and making our own paths, often the ones paved with least resistance. Forgive us for ignoring completely the truths that can so easily set us free. Our history has cried for king-like leaders who will solve our problems and meet our needs, but there's only one king, and that is you, Lord. We blindly sought answers from others to life's unresolved questions, but you are the only wise counselor. We have longed for peace, but you are the only peacemaker. And the only Prince of Peace, we have clung to our science, not as ways of learning more of your creation, but as strongholds of selfish pride. With you, Lord, nothing formed against us can prosper. And without you, Father, we are nothing. We look to you and to you only, Lord. Help our leaders to make wise decisions. Help us to do our part in praying and staying with what we know is right according to the truth of your word. Teach us to make our actions count. And our words matter and align them both with your sense of rightness, not ours. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan Hawkins. Um, I think we'll all definitely say amen to that very, very needed and uh, Christ-centered prayer for our nation, for our world, for our family. So thank you very much for sharing. Uh, I'd like to once again welcome everyone who's joining the call um, our our host team, I'm John Woodward. Uh, you just heard from Dan Hawkins, who's in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. We have Aaron Kim here from Indiana and Ray Cruzy from Virginia. And we thank each one of you, about 23 of you, who are joining the call. And uh, God bless each of us as we open his word together. Um, if you open your Bibles with me, uh, we'll be looking at a number of scriptures together. Uh, Romans 6. Um, uh, is one of the key passages, and you probably recognize Romans 6, verse 23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we uh, want to see in this first study, 
of the law of liberty and the Christian life, actually the nature of sin, not to not to dwell on it in the sense of being morbid, uh, but really to understand the true nature of sin so that we appreciate the divine supernatural remedy God has given to us in our full pardon in Christ and freedom from the authority of sin that we're also going to be talking about. Um, I hope that many of you have had a chance to read chapter one of this book. Um, it's called The Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life. And Brother Dan just talked a little bit about the author, Evan Hopkins, and the importance of this book. And so uh, we just encourage each one of you uh, to to read it. We also have um, the uh, the text of the book at gracenotebook.com. And so um, we encourage each of you to read it, perhaps um, at gracenotebook.com or, or get a copy on your own. That would be, that'd be great. So um, I'm going to go at this time to a screen share. So we're still learning how to use the Zoom platform, so hopefully we'll figure this out. Here we go. And I'm going to go to a PowerPoint I prepared for you, and, and uh, I'll just start that right now. Okay. And so, um, and uh, looks like we've got Dan's camera instead of mine here on the upper corner, but that's okay. Dan's got a great living room. Um, Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life. We're going to be looking at uh, Chapter 1 tonight. And uh, in the PowerPoint here, I'd like to make a few introductory comments. First of all, I'd like to comment about the context of redemption history. The context of redemption history. You know, when we talk about the importance of the plan of salvation, we want to see that it's only by a right conception of sin and our need for a Savior that we appreciate God's amazing grace. In uh, the famous hymn by John Newton, um, it's only as he realized um, how how lost he was and how much he needed a Savior that grace became so amazing. So as you look at the whole Word of God, we have uh, the the account of creation, where at the beginning God created all things good. Um, we also see that uh, in Genesis 3 that there was the fall, where Adam and Eve uh, broke God's covenant and the human race was plunged into to sin and misery, much like the coronavirus crisis that's spreading around the world, um, sin spread to the whole human race. Romans 5:12 um, describes that very thing: that um, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death spread to all men, for all sinned. Uh, we also have the good news of uh, the promised Redeemer and the New Testament, where our Lord Jesus Christ said He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, to die on the cross, to rise again and offer free pardon to all those who take refuge in him and receive the gospel. So redemption history can only be understood in the context of sin and God's remedy for sin, right? Also, I'd like to mention the content of the Higher Life Convention. Um, uh, Dan was mentioning this a few minutes ago, and we see that they emphasized um, not only the the glory of being uh, heaven-bound and having salvation, after this life, but also the importance of having victory over intentional sin patterns and over life-controlling problems in this life. So when we read in the New Testament that we are to be more than conquerors through him who loved us, that's really what the convention emphasized. And the book that we're looking at, The Law of Liberty and the Spiritual Life, 
is uh, one of the classic books that that uh, articulates this message of abundant life that the New Testament teaches. And as you uh, look at uh, this convention called the Keswick Convention in England and other uh, similar conventions, we see there was a pattern where they started on day one with an emphasis on the need for a higher life, in other words, the nature of sin. And then they went on to talk about um, God's remedy for sin through the cross and then how to appropriate that by grace through faith. And that's why we're starting with chapter one, uh, where Evan Hopkins talks about the problem. In terms of my PowerPoint here, um, if you're going to look at it in terms of problem and solution, we're going to appreciate the solution much more when we understand the nature of the problem. And that's why we're starting with this topic. In terms of the illustration of, of uh, sickness, the Lord Jesus himself, when he was teaching, um, responded to the self-righteous Pharisees saying, it's not those who are um, whole and healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I'm not come to call the so-called righteous, but sinners to repentance. So just as a physician needs to recognize the nature of the illness before prescribing the appropriate treatment, um, so we see likewise that um, we want to understand the nature of our spiritual sickness, which is sin, so that we can have God's healing through the precious blood of Christ. I, I came across a book, um, uh, description of a book by Carl Menninger called Whatever Became of Sin. I was talking to uh, leaders of that clinic at a conference last October, and this is a famous book that he wrote. And what he was saying is, our culture has kind of erased the idea of sin, unless it's the name of a perfume or something. Um, and instead, um, humanistic psychology has redefined sin to be just a subjective feeling of guilt or um, uh, maybe weakness or a mistake. And they really um, so diluted the, the concept of sin that we need to rediscover it, which is why um, this first chapter is going to be such an important study for us. So let me go on then to walk you through um, a review of chapter one of Evan Hopkins' book, uh, The Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life. And so let me see if I can get my PowerPoint here to go to the next, the next page. Here we go. Um, so in the first part of chapter one, Evan Hopkins has some of these quotations, and I have page numbers here. He says, sin is not uh, an essential element in the constitution of our humanity. And by what our author means by that is that you've heard the expression to err is human, right? Well, technically, that's not part of our human nature, because when God created our first parents, uh, they were not erring. They were innocent. And so it's not an essential element of our our nature as humans. Of course, we know that also because the Lord Jesus Christ, as fully human and fully divine, um, demonstrates that humanity doesn't need to be sinful. And uh, that's an important introductory concept. Page 16, Mr. Hopkins mentions that nor again are we to regard sin as a necessary constituent of our moral progress. What he's saying is that even though we can learn from our mistakes, we shouldn't think that that having intentional sin in our life is necessary for us to grow. It reminds us of what Romans 6 verse 1 says, shall we continue 
in sin, in other words, willful sin, that grace may abound. And uh, as the Greek says, meganoito, then may it never be. The characteristic feature of each aspect of sin is met by a corresponding fitness in the remedy which God has provided for sin. What we're seeing here, friends, is that we're going to look at five aspects of sin and the biblical basis for it, but then we're going to look uh, at good news. So I don't want us to uh, be discouraged by this study. We're going to see that by a clearer understanding of the nature of the problem, we'll have a, a greater appreciation of the nature of God's solution. And so we're going to see under each aspect that there is a corresponding uh, quality of the remedy that God has provided for us uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So um, let's launch out then. And this uh, recording, by the way, is going to be on, on our website. If you go to our landing page at Grace Fellowship um, under GFI Counseling Institute, you'll go to online webinar page. And from there, you'll see the recorded videos page. And so this PowerPoint, um, you can review and uh, get the notes from there so you don't have to jot down every jot and tittle as we go through. You can go back and see the video later. Um, or uh, maybe it'd be good for me just to put on the um, the PowerPoint so you can download the file. So I think I think I'll go ahead and do that. I'll just put the PowerPoint on the recorded videos page so you all can download it and teach it yourself. Okay, we're going to look at aspect number one. We're going to look at five aspects of sin during um, this review of chapter one of Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life. First aspect, in its essential character, sin is rebellion against God. So notice that sin is rebellion against God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it talks about um, this, that sin is lawlessness. Or it might, you might translate as a disregard for the law. So 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So that's one of the key definitions of sin is that it's a disregard for God's law. And notice here in, um, in our study that it's, it's the Old Testament law. And of course the Ten Commandments are the classic summary of the moral law of God and uh, very important to to see how the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But not only is there the Ten Commandments uh, as a summary of the moral law, but also the New Testament, we have many um, reaffirmations of the moral law in the Gospels and in the Epistles, and our Lord Jesus summarizes the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So uh, there's the New Testament emphasis of the moral law, and also Romans chapter 2, remember friends, Romans 2 says that our conscience, our inner awareness of right and wrong uh, is a, an inner law that testifies when we violate our understanding of, of what is good. And uh, if, we, if we say or do something that's bad, there's that inner witness. So whether you think of the Old Testament law, the New Testament written law, or a conscience, we see that um, the law is a testimony of the holiness and justice of our Creator. And since we're made in His image, we have a conscience, even though that's somewhat defiled and desensitized. Um, as C.S. Lewis mentions in uh, Mere Christianity, uh, the testimony of conscience is still there in every culture. Well, now for some good news. God's remedy in Christ, which we'll see with each of these aspects. 
Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross is God's remedy. Aren't you glad? Isaiah 53, written seven centuries before our Lord Jesus came. And Isaiah chapter 53 says it this way. Verse 5, Christ, speaking of the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Remember Christ's statement on the cross, one of the seven sayings? He said, It is finished. Amen. It is finished. He paid for our sins once and for all, didn't he? And then Evan Hopkins points us to 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we'll turn to verse 18, 1 Peter 3, and I use the New King James Version in, in these lessons. 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So there you see, friends, that substitutionary sacrifice. It says that he was the just one, the idea of being totally compliant and obedient to God's law, but we are the unjust. We are the ones that, as we're seeing here, have uh, disobeyed God's law. We have rebelled against God by doing things we shouldn't have done, by not doing the things we should have done. Theologians call those sins of commission and sins of omission. Um, and so First Peter 3.18, so these are the um, statements about our Lord's death on the cross, and what a wonderful remedy that is the only remedy, and that's why the gospel is so crucial, isn't it? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Okay, brothers and sisters, let's go on to aspect two in terms of the nature of sin. And Evan Hopkins notes that sin is sometimes considered a power, a principle, or an evil influence. In the fallen, in fallen man, page 18. And so here we see that not only are sins acts that we sometimes do, either internal or external, but sometimes it's considered a principle or power. You see this in Romans 6 and Romans chapter 7, where sin is almost personified, where it says in Romans 6 verse 17 that we're no longer slaves of sin. You picture a taskmaster, an evil king, picture uh, uh, the president of North Korea, or some evil tyrant like that. And and so we were under that tyrant of sin. And here that's what we're talking about, the evil influence of sin. Romans 6 verse 18 says something similar, which is talking about the remedy in the gospel. It says, um, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether sin, here's talking about sin as a power or principle or evil influence, Sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness, Romans 6, 16, and then 18 as well, that we've been set free from the slave market of sin. Likewise, Romans 7 talks about how that if you and I try to be holy by external rules and our own strength, then we're going to end up like Paul saying that this uh, defeat, this sin is not coming from me, meaning the new spiritual part of you as a believer, 
but it's coming from sin that dwells in me, sin that dwells in me. That's what we're talking about here, friends, the aspect of sin as a power or principle or evil influence. Um, you might think of, um, those of you who like physics may think of the law of entropy, you know, how everything tends toward randomness and decay. Uh, I'm not talking about my used car, all right? But uh, any anything in, in the universe is, is running down. Um, but uh, the Bible says that in Christ, Colossians chapter 1 says, in Christ all things hold together. So if our life is falling apart, it seems no friends that the Lord can pull us together by his grace and strength. Uh, another example of uh, the principle as a, a physics illustration would be the law of gravity. So just as the law of gravity pulls objects down toward the earth, we see that can be counteracted by a higher law, like the law of flight, the law of aerodynamics. So we're thinking of sin here as that kind of a power or principle. And that's really important to understand uh, the problem uh, of uh, the principle of sin in Romans 6 and Romans chapter 7. But aren't you glad, friends, that God has a remedy in Christ? Evan Hopkins says, because the believer is identified with Christ in that death, he is also delivered from sin as a ruling principle. His power is broken. He is, in that sense, free from sin. So here again, we're talking about sin, not in terms of acts, because we're not going to ever be free from committing any sins in this life. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Unfortunately, we're not promised sinless perfection this side of glory. But we are free from sin as an evil principle. Um, in American history, we have the account of uh, the Emancipation Proclamation where slaves were set free. Well, that's kind of what we're saying here. We've been set free from sin, but just as the slaves would need to hear that good news and believe it and act on it, so we need to believe in God's remedy in Christ and believe it and act on it. Mr. Hopkins says, hum humanistic morality says, become what you should be. In other words, uh, um, humanism says, your conscience says, be a good person, so try to be a good person. But the New Covenant is so much uh, more complete answer. It says to the believer, become in your conduct what you already are in Christ. Isn't that good? So God has made us holy in our spirit. He's declared us righteous. So we're saying that our remedy here is to live according to our, our new and true identity. Amen? All right. Let's go on to aspect three. This is a little bit uh, more complex, so hang in there, all right? A sin is also an uncleanness that makes us unfit for God's presence. We have thus become conscious not only of guilt, that was our, our first aspect, but also what you might call defilement, defilement. So if something gets contaminated by a, a virus, that's the idea of a, a medical defilement. Um, if something is sterilized like surgical instruments, that would be the opposite of defilement. Uh, to use an Old Testament example here, we have two distinct sources, our author says, of defilement in terms of, of moral, um, immoral defilement. One is internal defilement, and the other is external. In other words, we can trip up and, and have sin problems due to what's inside of us, the flesh, but also we can be tripped up by external defilement, like the devil and the world system. 
So notice here that um, the book of Leviticus emphasizes this first aspect. Internal defilement was exemplified in the condition and treatment of leprosy. So leprosy is kind of a picture of the, um, the way that sin uh, spreads and corrupts, and it's really a systemic problem from the health of an individual. And so primarily we'll think of that as a, a picture of um, the, uh, the corruption of sin uh, in what we would call the flesh of the believer. And so you can check out Leviticus 14 for laws about cleansing uh, from leprosy when, uh, when a person might have been uh, cured of milder forms of leprosy. Also, there was, however, external defilement, and that was exemplified in the ordinance of the red heifer, or this, they'd have this teaching about a cow. If there was a cow that was totally red, it would qualify for a special red heifer offering. And as you look at the book of Numbers, you see that there is a ritual where the priest was to, to uh, slay this animal outside the camp, burn it, and then the ashes of the red heifer uh, would be kept and then mixed with the waters of purification. Now, we don't have time to go into that in more detail, other than to say that there is some symbolic meaning in both of these that the author brings out in terms of the remedy we have in Christ. God's remedy, quote, The true basis of all purification is found in the atoning death of Christ. There are not two fountains but or two sources of life and purity. There is one. There's but one central spring, and that is the cross. So what he's saying is that through what our Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross, you and I have a spring of cleansing that cleanses us from internal defilement and defilement that comes from our contamination with the sin-cursed world and, and uh, perhaps demonic harassment sometimes. Let's look in our Bibles at Titus chapter 2. And uh, we have here in our PowerPoint verse 14 quoted. It says that, um, our Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That reminds us of aspect number one. But also it says, and purify for himself. Here's our aspect number three. Purify for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. So friends, through the gospel, we are redeemed. We are set free from the authority of sin as an evil taskmaster. And we're also purified from defilement. And that's an ongoing remedy that um, the washing of water by the word, Ephesians chapter 5 describes it. 1 John 1, 9, the Lord continues to cleanse us from all sin. And we're so grateful for that blessed remedy, aren't we? All right, let's go to aspect number four. And here our author describes sin as a paralyzing or disabling influence. And he compares it to disease in the human body. And, of course, with the coronavirus epidemic, we're thinking and, and concerned and dealing a lot with uh, medical issues and, and uh, recovering from illness. He says, every cure that the Lord wrought, speaking of Christ's miracles of healing, was an emancipation of a part or the whole of the body and represented the liberation of the soul from some particular form of moral evil. So he's saying that our Lord's miracles were not only demonstrations of Christ's power, which they certainly were, but also there was a symbolic and spiritual meaning behind it. We'll talk more about that as we go. This spiritual healing implied in Christ's physical healing miracles 
not only relates to the initial redemption, in other words, how we're saved, but also the potential healing of the believer's personality and conduct. Those are some comments from myself here. So 1 Peter 2, 24, that describes our salvation as a spiritual healing. But then Hebrews 12, 13, which I added to our lesson, talks about the believer needing to uh, um, prepare himself and put... Um, kind of like putting bones back in, in uh, um, dislo- if the joint is dislocated, having, having that bone straightened or dislocated joint fixed. And it's a picture of, um, of what needs to happen in our life if we get off track and need God's, God's restorative work in our hearts and lives. And then Mr. Hopkins says, we also see the loss of power of voluntary muscle, muscular motion. In other words, he's saying that sometimes people are paralyzed and our Lord healed the man, for example, you know, at the pool in the Gospel of John. And he's saying sin has precisely the same effect on our souls. They can be disabled from living for God through the pollution of sin. Quote, though there is spiritual life, there may be a lack of spiritual vigor. So just as disease hinders our, our physical life, so sin will inhibit our spiritual vitality, won't it? And disease may bring about positive effects. Here he means um, actual functional defects of the bodily organism. Not positive meaning good, but um, external activity. And he gives it for this as an example in the case of the man born blind or the one who is deaf and dumb. And then our author goes in to describe how sin has a blinding influence in our life. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 that our eyes would be open to the truth. It also has a deafening influence where our ears get stopped up and we don't hear that still small voice of the Lord. And it can rob us of our ability to speak God's truth with confidence. And that's why Paul prayed for uh, an anointing to preach as he wanted to preach. And so we need to have God's remedy in Christ, don't we, friends? God's remedy in Christ, we're pointed to Mark chapter 7, verse 34, where our Lord uh, says, be opened. Here we have the Aramaic, ephatha. And the author says, the act was symbolical of the whole of Christ's ministry. I love that quote. He came not only to redeem the soul, but to liberate every power and faculty that we possess. So just as opened, the Lord opened um, the faculties of uh, the man's hearing and speaking, so he does that in our lives as we repent and appropriate his cleansing on a daily basis. Hallelujah for the finished work of Christ and the ongoing remedy of his finished work in our lives. Amen? All right. Thanks for your attention, folks. Now let's go to aspect number five. This is the fifth of five aspects in chapter one of Law of Liberty. Sin, when involved uh, in the power of habit, is aspect five. Experience teaches us that actions, and especially the oft-repeated actions of days gone by, are a real power in us today. Page 31. It is of the greatest importance that we should recognize the clear distinction that exists between the inherent tendency and the acquired habit. Every evil habit may be entirely laid aside. We may be completely delivered from the power of any habit. But this does not mean that the tendency to sin is thereby eradicated. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying that we uh, tend to be creatures of habit, don't we? And not all habits are bad. Um, I think when you brush your teeth or when you uh, make tea or coffee, you don't have to uh, 
put a lot of thought into it uh, is almost uh, automatic, right? But there can be bad habits um, of uh, drug drug abuse or um, uh, um, profanity or, or other sin patterns which become habitual. Maybe it was because of the family we were raised in or the social group we're in or other factors that be ca- caused certain um, habits. And today the clinical word is addictions. And um, I was talking to someone today who's in the process of being set free um, in this way by the power of the gospel. So we rejoice. My colleague Don Steve leads our recovery coast track. And we're so thankful uh, for aspect number five, the fact that God has a remedy in Christ. The author points to Ephesians 4, 25 and following, that we are to put off like dirty clothes these um, uh, sinful patterns. And in 1 Peter 1, we are told um, that we are to, to lay aside the old manner of life because we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So it's really important to see that we can be set free from intentional sin patterns. Someone defined a rut this way. A rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. And we don't want to be stuck in a rut, do we, friends? What's God's remedy in Christ? Well, um, here I have a scripture that I added from Ephesians chapter 5. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Notice in that passage, friends, that our identity is that we are light in the Lord, but now we are to walk according to our new identity. And the fruit of being freed from those sin patterns, which is described here as goodness and righteousness and truth, is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Empowering us to live this new quality of life. So Mr. Hopkins says, we may thus claim as one of the benefits of Christ's death, complete and immediate deliverance from the evil power, I added the word authority, of our past manner of life. And that's why thousands and thousands of believers have been helped by this teaching of the victorious Christian life from 1875 all the way to today. And of course, before that, um, but as in terms of how this is articulated by Um, this author, we can really appropriate that level of victory. But before we wrap up this summary of chapter 1, we see that he ends with what I'll call a clarification. That's from page 34 on. The Grace Notebook edition and the the CLC edition have these page numbers. But he wants us to clarify that maintaining a condition of victory by faith in Christ is life. Um, This is not a Um, just a once-for-all victory, or it's not a promise of sinless perfection in this life. And so he uses this illustration of a candle in a dark room. He's saying that um, if you take a candle into a dark room, and then uh, you walk out of the room with the candle, the dark room doesn't stay illuminated, does it? So he says, let the darkness represent sin and the light holiness. What the lighted candle is to the dark room Christ is to the heart of the believer. He goes on to say here, then we have not a fixed state, but a maintained condition. And an apt illustration of the law of entire and continual dependence. That's why he's emphasizing that this victory is a intimate relationship, a day-by-day potential that we have. Yet recognizing the fact that we're not only liable, but prone to sin, 
that we have to the last a downward bias. But let us not forget that Christ is stronger than Satan and sin. First Corinthians 15, I added, uh, but thanks be to God who gives us, that's a grace word, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one of his last paragraphs gives us a review of our chapter. By Christ's death, he has separated us from sin as to his penalty. I've added these numbers from our outline. It's service, it's defilement, it's enfeebling consequences, it's habits. And so in this life, his indwelling life, he sets us free from its law. He so counteracts the natural tendency to sin by the law of the spirit of life that both his tyranny and strain are gone. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for this this Bible study. I hope it's been as much of a blessing uh, to you as it has been for me as we go through uh, this first chapter of the law of liberty in the spiritual life. So let me just conclude here um, with another comment for me. I brought along a little object lesson here uh, from our barbecue. So notice that uh, when this is lit, have you seen it here? There we go. So as long as this is lit, then the light from the flame will continue. But if the light goes out, then the the illumination of that that candle or that flame is extinguished. Now we know that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. But in Ephesians 3, we're told to pray um, that that Christ may dwell in his fullness, okay, in our hearts through faith. And so it's as he dwells us in his fullness that we have the full illumination uh, of his presence. And so the illustration is that we are to maintain this abiding relationship, not by self-effort, but by yielding and trusting in him. And in the uh, nine chapters that follow in this very profound study, we're going to be discovering other aspects of God's provision. We'll be uh, looking at there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ the nature of the victorious life, liberty, sanctification, and other uh, very profound topics. So we thank you so much for your attentiveness as we've gone through this summary of Chapter 1. I'll have the PowerPoint and the video uh, on the uh, um, recorded video page in a day or two. So uh, hopefully that will be a blessing to you. Uh, I was uh, helping out uh, with some vacuuming. And us guys, when we clean in the house, we like real practical jobs, right, like vacuuming. And as I was vacuuming the house, actually, is today, I started to say, wait a minute, what's all this mud? And I had put on some shoes after I had worked in the garden, um, and I left these shoes were, were in the breezeway, and I hadn't worn them for a couple days. I put them on. I didn't realize that as I was vacuuming, I was leaving mud behind, <laughs> behind my vacuuming. I thought, oh, boy, this is not working. So I... I put the shoes back outdoors and had to do a second round of vacuuming. But, you know, sometimes our Christian life is like that. Um, we know that the remedy is there for us, but we need to be intentional about not retracking in uh, the old patterns that we've been set free from. So thank you for your attentiveness, and I hope that this has been a blessing to you.